Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to Mises Weekends. This is our last program of 2016, and we'd like to thank you for listening and thank you for everything you do to support the Mises Institute. We decided it would be fitting for our last show of the year to feature a great talk from the late Dr. Ralph Rako. You may have heard the sad news that Ralph passed away earlier in December at the age of 80. He was an absolute giant in the liberty movement, uh, a former student of Ludwig von Mises, having attended his famous seminars at NYU. Friedrich Hayek advised him on his PhD, and of course he was a great colleague and friend of Murray Rothbard and other luminaries like Ron Hemaway. He knew and interacted with Ayn Rand personally for a period, and he's probably best known as a phenomenal revisionist historian. But he gave a talk at our Mises University in 2009 simply entitled Liberalism. It's an absolute tour de force on what real liberalism is, and it's well worth an hour of your time to spend with the genius that was the late Dr. Ralph Rako. I'm very pleased uh, to be at another one of these Mises Universities, and from what I understand, this is by far the largest group. Um, Allow me a bit of uh, nostalgia. It used to be said that the whole American libertarian movement could be fitted into Murray Rothbard's living room, and (laughs) an orphan was. And that's pretty much true, really. I'm talking about quite a long time ago. But uh, things have changed under the um, leadership of uh, Lou Rockwell, uh, seconded by uh, Bert Blumert, and this wonderful institute, and now carried forth by Doug French. And um, things are, are uh, looking up. I'm going to be speaking uh, this morning about um, liberalism. Okay? Now, a few decades ago, uh, before your time, most of the people here, but uh, believe me, the scholarly world devoted an enormous amount of effort to the history of socialism especially in its Marxist uh, versions. Uh, Even the minutiae of socialist doctrine and agitation uh, were examined over and over again in uh, mind-numbing detail. There was even, for instance, a book written on the day-to-day lives, uh, adult lives, of Karl Marx and and Friedrich Engels. Um, Particular branches of the field, like a so-called Marxist humanism, became minor academic industries. This was all over the place. In Europe, I think probably more than in the US. Um, Such an imbalance of allocation of uh, scholarly resources was not perhaps uh, irrational, if you accepted the view, which uh, was very widespread among intellectuals of the time, that socialism was the predestined radiant future of all mankind. I don't know if um, any of our European friends remember, but in those days, that, that, was, the, that was one of the standing slogans in these East European uh, capitals. I mean, something like uh, out of 1984, the huge banners uh, across the streets or in plazas and so on with different slogans. That, that was one of the major slogans, radiant future of all mankind. More recently, a change has become evident uh, with the frustration of the traditional socialist project in the West and the failure and collapse of real existing socialist regimes. It has begun to be uh, to dawn on certain professors uh, that uh, maybe a, a little bit of attention should be paid to the philosophical foundations of our own civilization. Uh, thus, uh, liberalism which a French scholar has rightly called the steady uh, motif of modern politics, of the politics of Europe and the West for about the past 300 years, liberalism has become increasingly the subject of study, though still to a relatively minor degree considering its intrinsic importance. As yet, no serious effort has been made to provide an overall account of the history of liberalism comparable to uh, the highly praised and deeply flawed work of uh, Guido di Ruggiero, uh, a story of uh, European liberalism, which in any case was just limited uh, to France, uh, Germany, uh, Britain, and Italy. Hayek, 
calls um, calls um, Ruggiero's book in, in, in characteristically um, generous terms uh, his uh, justly esteemed work. I think I think it's a terrible work. Um, <laughs> Hayek, as, you know, was my professor at Chicago, but uh, he, he, he liked too many people. <laughs> um, so such, such a synthetic uh, treatment of uh, liberalism is needed. Doubtless, it will some, someday be attempted, maybe by one of you. And what I'm saying now can be considered uh, simply as, a, as prolegomena to such a general treatment of liberalism. Now, understandably enough, the current disfavor uh, into which socialism has fallen has spurred what an Italian scholar uh, refers to as a frenzy to proclaim yourself a liberal. Many writers have recourse to the stratagem of inventing for, the, for themselves a liberalism according to their own taste. As uh, the scholar says, Raimondo Cubeddu is his name, the super, uh, at Pisa, the superabundance of liberalisms, uh, he says, uh, is like uh, that of money ending up by debasing everything and emptying it of meaning. In fact, uh, if you uh, look over the literature on liberalism nowadays, it's a, it's a, it's a mess. It's a mass of conceptual mayhem. One root cause of this is the uh, frequent attempt by some writers to accommodate all important political groupings that have called themselves liberal. This is an approach uh, favored especially by some British scholars in particular, uh, and whose conception of liberalism, the doings and sayings of the British Liberal Party of the 20th century weigh mightily. Um, Critics um, in Britain have said uh, what the uh, British uh, Liberal Party now stands for basically is um, uh, public funding of um, uh, sex change operations for the police. <laughs> now, there, there is no doubt that around uh, 1900, the Liberal Party in Britain veered increasingly in the status direction. And in the U.S., a similar transformation happened to the Democratic Party, which was once uh, called the party of Jefferson and Jackson. But such, uh, and, and similar changes in continental uh, parties that kept the name liberal. Uh, but this is explained typically by the dynamics of democratic electoral politics. Faced with the competition of collectivist ideas, liberal parties produced a new breed of political entrepreneurs, maybe you're familiar with that term from public choice, they're skilled at mobilizing rent-seeking constituencies. <clears throat> In order to gain power, these political leaders revised the liberal program to the point where it was virtually indistinguishable from democratic, uh, from so social democracy or democratic socialism, um, ending up by accepting the notion, as they do today, that the state uh, is an instrument for redesigning society to produce particular ends. If one holds, however, that the meaning of liberal must be modified because of ideological shifts within the British Liberal Party or the Democratic Party in the US, then um, consideration must be given to the national liberals of Imperial Germany. Maybe not too familiar, uh, to you, but they were very important at one time. They, as well as David Lloyd George and John Maynard Keynes, uh, would have a claim to be situated in the same ideological category as uh, Richard Cobden, uh, John Bright, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and others. Yet, these are, uh, this is a pet peeve of mine, these national liberals in Germany supported, among various other things, uh, the Kulturkampf, the, uh, that, that is uh, Bismarck's persecution of the Catholic Church, and the anti-socialist laws, Bismarck's abandonment of free trade, introduction of the protective uh, tariff, and the Bismarck's introduction of the welfare state. Welfare state was invented in, uh, in Germany at that time. Uh, these so-called national liberals supported the enforced Germanization of the Poles of Eastern Prussia, 
colonial expansion, world politics, and the military, and especially naval buildup under uh, Wilhelm II, which uh, had disastrous consequences of alienating Britain. So if you wanted to go simply by the party labels, I mean, who calls themselves liberals, these national liberals would have more of a right to the title than the authentic German liberals who went by different names, progressives and Freisen and so on. And um, these national liberals uh, betrayed authentic liberalism. So why, so why not then include these national liberals, if, if that's the way you want to approach it, that anybody who calls themselves uh, a liberal, you, you have to accommodate uh, them and their point of view in a general definition of liberal. Why not? Well, it's typical Anglo-American parochialism. You know, nothing really counts unless it's written and spoken in English. Uh, so it is evident that mere self-description uh, by politicians cannot be decisive. A few authors have despaired of finding any common characteristic underlying liberalisms of different national groups or even individual decades of modern history. Uh, more common, however, has been the attempt uh, to demarcate the concept of liberalism by listing a list of traits or a list of model liberal figures. And you know, I said it's conceptual mayhem, and this will give you an idea. Uh, this, there's a celebrated Manhattan literary critic at Columbia named uh, Lionel Trilling, and he wrote a book called The Liberal Imagination, characterized liberalism uh, as, among other things, a belief in planning and international cooperation, especially where Soviet Russia is in question. Um, more more uh, plausibly, John Gray, um, who at one time, John Gray sp uh, spoke here at, at one time. I don't know if you're familiar with his works, but uh, um, he's gotten worse and worse, and now, uh, I mean, he's, he's gone through a lot of different phases of uh, uh, ideologies, and now John, who used to be a, a friend of mine, uh, I think the main thing on his mind is his intense hatred of the human race. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a super um, uh, tree hugger. <laughs> John Gray uh, views liberalism as individualist, egalitarian, universalist, uh, and then goes on to distinguish equally valid, separate branches of um, the liberal uh, heritage. Uh, Gray, as well as uh, some other writers, furnish uh, lists of clear-cut, unquestionable, unquestionable liberals, which includes, besides John Locke and Kant and uh, Herbert Spencer and Hayek, thinkers like uh, John Maynard Keynes, Karl Popper, and John Rawls. But if you want to include all those people somehow under the term liberal, um, it in, impoverishes the uh, term to the point where it becomes useless. If you want to uh, canvas the views of Kant, Spencer, Karl Popper, John Rawls, there's no uh, common consensus on crucial issues, for instance, on the welfare state or the limits of state action. And it is significant that an unambiguous belief in private property is absent from Gray's enumeration of so-called essential traits. It is remarkable how often um, writers on liberalism uh, omit support of private property when they characterize the doctrine. Here's an ideology that has shaped world history, uh, but which it seems had nothing definite to say about how human beings work, survive, and occasionally prosper. Instead, what liberalism is about is individual self-expression. I mean, the vast majority of the human race is interested in economic freedom, the sort of things that go along with private property. Uh, intellectuals, however, are interested in individual self-expression. Uh, private property, in fact, has always been the uh, chief bone of contention. Um, in recent years, with the emergence of a revitalized movement stressing property, our, our kind of thing, and the free market, um, a number of commentators have experienced acute embarrassment. I won't go through all of these um, 
There's a Brazilian writer named Helio Guaribe, a, pol a political scientist, um, who describes Hayek, Milton Friedman, and Ludwig von Mises. He identifies Mises, by the way, as the author of the libel socialism, um, as extremely conservative, as extremely conservative uh, writers. Uh, David Spitz is a well-known uh, uh, American um, commentator, uh, likewise thinks that uh, those three people, Hayek, Friedman, and Mises, are conservatives. But what he could possibly understand by that is unclear, since he believes that their patron saint was Herbert Spencer. Uh, you know, just a mishmash they and, and contradictions. They don't bother to make sense. They don't think enough of our point of view to, to bother to make sense or uh, have some consist consistent view. Um, Max Weber, who of course was a, a great German sociologist. I'm gonna to try to use this device here. I think this is called an iPod. <laughs> All right, it does work. Max Weber, and, uh, Weber wrote on, uh, oh, he was a great man, a, uh, a great and really the great sociologist of modern times as far as I, uh, I'm concerned, a lot of people are concerned, wrote a lot about methodology. And uh, Weber said, the use of undifferentiated collective concepts of everyday speech is always a cloak for confusion of thought and action. It is indeed very often an instrument of specious and fraudulent procedures, in other words, dishonesty. Uh, it is, in brief, always a means of obstructing the proper formulation of the problem. Um, in other words, we can't uh, simply take this term liberal that's thrown, thrown around all the time. It has to be clarified, it has to be distilled, and um, uh, maybe I'll, I'll be able to talk about what um, uh, Weber meant by that. Uh, we don't have to deal with uh, some of these people. Oh yeah, a man who's very interesting because an English writer, he wrote a book called On the, on the uh, 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 Rise and Decline of Liberalism, a big uh, historical work that has a lot of interesting information. But afterwards, after he wrote this book, uh, he confessed, I was honest enough to confess that uh, he was mistaken in only uh, devoting a few pages to liberal political economy, which is to say economic freedom. Um, he uh, writes, this is afterwards in his kind of confession, regarding the views of Hayek and other uh, thinkers. He said, my account of the phenomenon was based on this half-conscious assumption that history had rendered these ideas permanently obsolete. That is private property, the free market, and so on. That their revival was almost an eccentricity, certainly a deviation from the main path of modern social and political development which pointed steadily in the direction of the growth of state intervention in the economy and state responsibility for the welfare of citizens. And I think it's, he's very honest about that, and that's what's uh, involved with uh, many of these other writers. Um, grappling with this issue has uh, uh, caused a, um, a very accomplished historian of ideas, an Englishman named uh, Alan Ryan, who teaches at Oxford and uh, Princeton. Um, he concedes a place to Hayek within the category of contemporary liberals. You know, nobody bothers to mention Mises. Mises was um, sort of infradig and, um, uh, you know, Hay as I say, Hayek made a lot of concept. Hayek devoted, uh, had uh, uh, dedicated the road to serfdom, you know, to socialists of all parties. That's like Ayn Rand dedicating at the shrugged uh, to at, uh, to um, thugs of all descriptions, <laughs> Mises would wouldn't do something wouldn't do something like that. So Hayek uh, they find more favorable, but Ryan says that the classical liberals um, um, can't be considered libertarians. Libertarians are in a different category because libertarians uh, favor decriminalizing victimless crimes. Yeah. 
I mean, the guy doesn't, I, do, I respect him, but how, how can he say something like that? First of all, decriminalizing victimless crimes is implicit in Herbert Spencer's law of equal freedom. And it's, it's explicit in Hayek's Constitution of Liberty and in, in Mises' uh, Human Action, where Mises uh, is, in, is in favor of doing away with, with uh, drug pro prohibition laws. Okay, now, so how did this confusion come about? Uh, much of the present um, contradiction and confusion about liberalism can be traced to a man named can't believe this John Stuart Mill should you should feel free to to uh, hiss in a discreet kind of way from time to time <laughs> uh, when I mention people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and uh, you know I say discreetly don't make a riot out of it now, John Stuart Mill occupies a tremendously inflated position in uh, the view that English-speaking people have of liberalism. Um, probably uh, you, were, uh, you had to read some parts of uh, his uh, famous book on liberty in one of your classes or other. And um, he was called the saint of rationalism by Gladstone, but he was responsible for key distortions of the liberal doctrine that had come down to him. Um, for instance, if you, if you look at uh, his little book on, 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 on liberty, he says at the very beginning that uh, I'm not going to be dealing with economic, with the, uh, the doctrine of free trade, by which he meant economic freedom, um, you know, the, the use of, uh, of uh, property and so on, um, which of course is what the vast majority of the human race is interested in. Instead, he's going to deal with uh, freedom of, uh, of uh, <clears throat> expression and, um, of, and, the, and experiments in lifestyle, which, you know, are important enough, but uh, really a minority interest. Um, he accepted and even elaborated socialist arguments he was very interested in the socialism of his time. Uh, he, uh, Mill um, explicitly rejected the liberal notion that of the long-term harmony of interests of all social classes, including, for instance, entrepreneurs and workers. Mill said, to say that they have the same interest is to say that, uh, that it is the same thing to a person's interest, whether a sum of money belongs to him or to someone else. Following this very peculiar reasoning would reveal a very large number of hitherto unsuspected conflicts of interest in society. For instance, between any two people who pass each other in the street. Um, it was supposed to, um, uh, Murray has some very good uh, uh, pages on, um, Murray Rothbard, some very good pages on, on Mill and his uh, history of economic thought. Um, calls him the dithering Mill, the man of mush. <laughs> that was a problem with Murray, always pulling his punches. Uh, in, indeed, in arguing, uh, Alan Ryan again, uh, that um, anti-capitalism that, that anti is one of the hallmarks of liberalism, uh, Ryan invokes none other than John Stuart Mill. Mill wrote, the, generali <clears throat> the generality of laborers in this and most other countries have as little choice of occupation and freedom of, lo of locomotion, locomotion as they could on any system short of actual slavery. That's at a, at a, at a, at a time when millions in England and, and tens of millions elsewhere uh, were moving around, going to cities, going even abroad, colonizing the world and so on. And he says that these laborers uh, had uh, uh, were almost slaves. Uh, in international affairs, he repudiated the liberal principle of non-intervention in foreign wars, which was ex uh, exposited uh, basically by 
uh, Richard Cobden, whom I'll talk about tomorrow. Cobden feared such entanglements in the uh, affairs of other countries would un undermine liberty at home. Mill provided the inter uh, interventionists with what has become a favorite argument. Um, and I mean, to, the, to the very day, uh, to this very day among the neoconservatives, uh, a basically free society that is powerful, for instance, England in Mill's time, um, had, has an obligation to come to the defense of the freedom of other people when they are threatened by oppressors. Um, and um, and, and there's, a, there's a line that um, connects, and the question of foreign affairs connects Mill with uh, um, Woodrow Wilson. No, no. <laughs> and you don't know when to hiss. Um, and uh, to, the, to the present day with the neoconservatives. But worst of all was Mill's deformation of the concept of liberty itself. Liberty, it seems, is a condition that is threatened not only by physical aggression on the part of the state or other institutions or individuals. Rather, society often poses even graver dangers to individual freedom. This it achieves through what he called the tyranny of, of the prevailing opinion and feeling. He says the tendency to impose by other ways than civil penalties its own ideas and practices as rules of conduct on those who descend from them. Uh, what society does is compel all characters to fashion themselves upon the model of its own. True liberty requires what Mill called autonomy. Because if you adopt the traditions and customs of other people, you're simply engaging in ape-like imitation. Where we would say that men and women choosing goals laid out for them by institutions whose authority over them they freely accept, Mill perceives the extinction of freedom. In a striking and utterly preposterous illustration, the saint of rationalism says, an individual Jesuit uh, is to the utmost degree of abasement a slave of his order. One wonders what is supposed to follow from this. Must we form abolitionist societies to uh, emancipate the willing slaves of the society of Jesus? How should we go about selecting our John Browns to lead the storming of the slave pits of Fordham University in Georgetown. <laughs> um, you have to ask yourself, by what right Mill and his alter ego, his girlfriend uh, Harriet Taylor, could ever have imagined themselves entitled to pass judgment on the status of members of Catholic and Eastern Orthodox uh, religious orders on Orthodox Jews and devout Muslims or any other religious believers. Um, a libertarian philosopher who I think is extremely perceptive, Lauren Lomaski, wrote about this, this um, concept of autonomy that philosophers love to talk about. Um, Lauren said, the advocacy of autonomy is typically accompanied by contempt for the actual. One who is born to a particular family, nation, religion is not therefore burdened with an anchor that restricts his domain of choice. Rather, he is a beneficiary of an inheritance of a manageable number of prospects for fashioning a worthwhile life. Um, Mill's comment on the Jesuits illustrates a facet of Mill uh, too uh, rarely noted. Uh, there's a British um, philosopher, I, I think, uh, passed away since, calls um, Mill one of the most, uh, Maurice Cowling, one of the most censorious of 19th century uh, moralists. 
Mill constantly passed judgments on the habits, attitudes, preferences, and moral standards of vast numbers of people of whom he knew nothing. Um, now, um, there are two writers who have written important books uh, criticizing Mill recently. One is uh, Joseph uh, Hamburger passed away, and um, Linda Rader, who teaches at a, uh, is a professor at a college in Florida. Excellent uh, works. Um, Hamburg, Hamburger wrote uh, on the dark side of John Stuart Mill. As far as Mill, Mill and Harriet Taylor's lifestyle goes, what? I thought I knew everything there was to, to know about this iPod. <laughs> okay. There was, a man, there was an English liberal of the middle of, of the 19th century named Henry Reeve. He was very well known. He was the editor of the Edinburgh Review, which was a major uh, uh, liberal uh, journal. Uh, he translated uh, Tocqueville's Democracy in America uh, into English. And, he, and, and Reeve knew Mill through most of his adult life. And uh, 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 Reeve believed that one result of Mill's, uh, you know, if you read his autobi uh, Mill's autobiography, the strangest kind of upbringing, uh, among other things, uh, the, the whole autobiography never even mentions his mother. It's just his father who, from the age of three on, imposed this uh, extremely odd education uh, learning Latin and Greek and, and so on. Um, so, um, uh, Reeve says uh, this uh, peculiar and isolated upbringing uh, and, um, his, and his and Harriet Taylor's later general avoidance of social intercourse meant that Mill was totally ignorant of uh, English life and society. Reeve says, Mill never lived in what might be called society at all. In later years, uh, he affected something of the life of a prophet surrounded by it, uh, admiring uh, uh, disciples. Mankind to, to him and them was an uh, abstraction rather than a reality. He knew nothing of the world. Now, this is a man who wasn't an enemy of Mill. He was just uh, an acquaintance, knew him very well. Um, What um, uh, Hamburger and um, uh, Linda Rader um, conclude is that uh, Mill was not in favor of, of a real um, uh, freedom of expression. He had a hidden agenda. The hidden agenda was to destroy organized religion as it, as it existed in his time and to replace it by Mill's concept of the religion of humanity, okay? where everybody would somehow spontaneously uh, work uh, their whole lives uh, through for the good of everyone else. So the uh, main thing was to dis destroy religion in his, own, in his own time, meaning Christianity. Um, and from Mill's time on, liberalism in the minds of some people, of some of some of these commentators, um, has become linked to an adversarial stance vis-a-vis uh, -vis religion, tradition, and social norms. Uh, here's an example by a, a well-known uh, scholar, Owen Chadwick, who is a Dixie uh, professor of emeritus of ecclesiastical history at Cambridge. Chadwick said, a liberal was one who wanted more liberty that is, freedom from restraint, whether the restraint was exercised by police, by law, or by social pressure, or by an orthodoxy of opinion, which men assailed at their peril. Uh, the liberal thought men needed far more room to act and think than they were allowed by established laws and conventions in European society. Um, I mean, that's really more of a description of, uh, I don't know, Greenwich Village Bohemians than, than, than liberals. You can't, you can't uh, 
uh, recognize Lord Acton, for instance, in something like that. John Donne is a very famous uh, uh, British political philosopher and hi historian of uh, politics, said, wrote, if the central dispositional value of liberals is tolerance, which is, itself is absurd, uh, I mean, the tolerance of, of, of what? Uh, yeah. um, I mean, the, the central dispositional uh, characteristic of, of liberals is belief in liberty, I think. But anyway, the central political value is perhaps a fundamental antipathy towards authority in any of its forms. That means that, that somebody, uh, uh, for instance, uh, who is a practicing Roman Catholic, submits himself to the authority of his church voluntarily, we're not talking about the Spanish Inquisition anymore, uh, voluntarily uh, is somehow uh, can't be a liberal. Dispositionally, liberalism has little regard for the past. Uh, this, uh, this, this guy is quite famous. Little regard for the past. So what happens to, to the great liberal historians of the 19th century, Macaulay, Augustin, Thierry, Lecky, Lord Acton, and, and so many others? Mill's view tends to erase the rather critical distinction between incurring social disapproval and incurring imprisonment. It leads to pitting liberalism against innocent, non-coercive traditional values and arrangements, especially religious ones. It also forges an offensive alliance between liberalism and the state, even if contrary to Mill's intention, since it's very hard to imagine how um, they, uh, they can uh, demolish everything uh, Mill wants to demolish without using political power. Um, so, uh, I don't, uh, my view is that um, um, it's a fundamental mistake to, to uh, consider uh, Mill a liberal. In case you, you're interested, I do the same sort of rather actually brilliant demolition job um, <laughs> on John Maynard Keynes in an article called uh, Was Keynes a Liberal? You can see it's online. It's in the independent review uh, that uh, Robert Higgs uh, edits. And it's in the uh, what, fall 2008 issue. Now, people talk about the old liberalism uh, versus the new liberalism. Now, there's no dispute that um, the term liberal did undergo some kind of change around 1900 um, in English-speaking countries. Not so much, for instance, in France, where liberal uh, still pretty much means what, uh, what it originally did and means our point of view. Joseph Schumpeter, whom some of you may be uh, familiar with, Schumpeter was, Schumpeter was an economist and an Austrian, although he's not an Austrian economist, but he was a brilliant man, fantastically well-read. His um, a History of Economic Analysis is a huge book and uh, really encyclopedic. Um, uh, ironic, he ironically observed that the enemies of the system of free enterprise paid it the, an unintended compliment when they applied the name liberal to their own creed, historically the opposite of what liberalism it stood for in the past. Now, for about a century, people have argued about uh, what the term liberal should mean, but you can follow the change, uh, this transformation from uh, what I would consider authentic liberalism to uh, what they call liberalism nowadays, um, the conventional view defends this change. What it says is that liberals from the 18th century on character, characteristically believed in laissez-faire. But, they say, beginning in the decades of the, 19, of the late decades of the 19th century, British thinkers like T.H. Green and uh, L.T. Hobhouse 
and their counterparts in uh, the U.S. and Germany, realized that laissez-faire was totally inadequate to the conditions of modern society. They were often inspired by John Stuart Mill explicitly. Um, and um, one of the uh, expositors of this conventional view says, the central value of the liberated individual, of man as far as possible his own sovereign, did not change. The understanding of the value and the means of achieving this end of the liberated individual did. In particular, the state, which earlier liberals had feared as the enemy of individual liberty, was now, according to this view, correctly seen as a potent engine for furthering uh, individual liberty in vital ways. The old liberalism then, they say, gave way to the new. Now, one thing to point out is that, is that there was a political purpose, uh, I would say kind of underhanded political purpose behind the semantic change. Uh, it was to ease the way for the revolutionary extension of the state's agenda. Today it is virtually an unlimited agenda, even in the United States. Government can do anything it wants. Um, the crying need for such an extension, however, was grounded on a highly questionable theory, which um, is still operative. The theory is that the old liberalism of laissez-faire had been made obsolete by deep-seated changes in society. The pioneers of the so-called new liberalism and their successors based uh, their claims on the supposed overwhelming power of business enterprise over consumers and workers. But uh, despite all this propaganda, such a power cannot be shown empirically or theoretically. You can check out um, works by Dom, uh, Armentano, Murray Rothbard, uh, Tom DeLorenzo, and Jack High have an important um, article that dates from 1988. Uh, but moreover, and decisively, the standard rationale for speaking of a new liberalism is analytically flawed. Because the end of achieving the liberated individual cannot be definitive of liberalism. Other ideologies, among them communist anarchism and many varieties of socialism, share that end. Consider the statement by Edward Bernstein, who was a founder of revisionist socialism. It's another uh, use of the term revisionist. Bernstein said, the development and protection of the free personality is the goal of all socialist measures, even those which superficially appear to be coercive. A closer examination will always show that it is a question of uh, coercion that it will increase the sum of freedom in society, that gives more freedom to a wider group than it takes away. Um, Jean Jaurès, who was a uh, leader of French socialism at the time of the Second International, um, asserted that socialism is a logical completion of individualism, in that it realizes the individualist ends through means more appropriate to the modern age. Um, but how does this differ from the standpoint of the new liberals? What divides liberalism from opposing ideologies is precisely its substantive uh, program, the means it advocates. Uh, well, it has the same ends as, uh, as uh, Bernstein and Jaurès are uh, describing, but the means are different. The means are private property, the market economy, minimizing the power of the state and of state-backed institutions. In Anglophone countries, those who anywhere else in the world would be called social democrats or democratic socialists, nothing wrong with those terms, honorable terms, uh, that they shy away from uh, acknowledging their proper name. Why is that? It is hard to avoid the conclusion that this is essentially a matter of political expediency. For some reason, labels suggestive of socialism have not been popular in countries of English heritage. Uh, in England, it's called the Labour Party. In um, um, K 
Canada, the, uh, the New Democrats. In uh, the United States, uh, the, the Democrats. This, and Republicans, actually. <laughs> now, there was a man named Edward Bellamy who wrote a famous um, book called Looking Backward. He was a socialist. His uh, cousin, by the way, another man named Bellamy, wrote the, the uh, Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Um, you, uh, you can you know, look up the history of this. There's a reason uh, why he talks, uh, or the Pledge of Allegiance says, one nation indivisible. You know, take that, you Confederates. Um, but that's another, another story. <laughs> Bellamy wrote uh, this classic uh, socialist work called Looking Backward. And in, uh, he wrote a letter uh, in 1888 to uh, a well-known American author, William Dean Howells. And Bellamy was considering what to call his doctrine. But he rejected the term socialist. Uh, he said, that's a word I could never well stomach, since it is foreign in itself and equally foreign in all its suggestions. Whatever German and, this is what he said, whatever German and French reformers may choose to call themselves, socialist is not a good name for a party to succeed with in America. Uh, he wanted to use the term nationalist. Uh, others, on the same grounds, called themselves liberals. Now, uh, the social, social uh, democratic commandeering of the term liberal met with great success. Uh, leading some laissez-faire liberals to start calling themselves individualists. Now, amusingly, I think, well, not that, not that amusing, but sort of ironically, uh, the next step was for socialists like John Dewey to try to capture the term individualist as well. Dewey said that um, there was an old individualism. You heard that story before? <laughs> before the age of the great corporations and modern social science, which, which he incarnated, he thought. Um, that, in, that old individualism must now be replaced by a new individualism and um, one product of this new individual, individualism would be, quote, a coordinating, and this is 1930. So, well, I'll explain why that's significant in a second. Uh, 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 this new, one product of this new individual, individualism would be a coordinating and directing council in, in which captains of industry and finance would meet with representatives of labor and public officials to plan and regulate the economy. Uh, any idea where that was happening in 1930? Huh? Yeah, in Italy. It was Mussolini's idea. But this is going to be the new individualism, he thought. Um, the, the, uh, the power center that Dewey proposed would have a voluntarist and thus appropriately American slant. Um, and America would set out constructively, quote, upon the road which Soviet Russia is following in such a deplorably destructive way. So the concept of liberalism was transformed to exclude adherence of the market economy and the private property. And now individualism was also to be re uh, redefined in the same way. It's almost as if they didn't want to have us, uh, they wanted to define us out of existence. Um, one could talk now about uh, liberalism and, and uh, the welfare state, uh, but uh, I'm afraid my time is becoming deplorably short. I get the same amount of time as anybody else. Um, let, let me uh, uh, very uh, quickly uh, sketch the roots of what I consider authentic uh, liberalism. Liber uh, the, that liberalism did not emerge uh, full-blown, um, nor, uh, nor did it undergo a metamorphosis into a status caric caricature of itself, but it did evolve. I'm not offering any argument that liberalism certainly sprang up at a certain point, complete, fully matured. Neither can liberalism be approached, as some people do, 
uh, as a, or a, a conversation conducted among philosophers over the centuries. Instead, liberalism must be understood, I think, as, the political, as a political and social doctrine and a movement grounded in the distinctive culture and traceable to specific historical conditions. That culture is the West, the Europe that arose in communion with the Bishop of Rome. Uh, the historical conditions were those of the Middle Ages. The history of liberalism is rooted in what economic historians sometimes called the European miracle. That's the title of a book by um, an Australian. Uh, e. Jones. The European miracle. The essence of the European experience is that a civilization developed that felt itself to be a unity and yet was politically radically decentralized. As a French scholar says, the great event, of, the great non-event of European history is that after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, no single empire was able to take over in Western Europe. The Hohenstaufen, Hohenstaufen uh, kings of Germany tried it, uh, at various times Spain tried it, Napoleon tried it, then Louis XIV tried it, but it never worked out. Europe remained decentralized. Um, and it, and uh, the continent in the West evolved into a mosaic of separate and competing jurisdictions and polities whose internal divisions themselves res, uh, resisted central control. Um, as one writer wrote, there was, in other words, a type of laissez-faire built into Europe as a whole. The relative uh, ease of exit, uh, write this in your notes, was fundamental. What it meant was I mean, all these different uh, uh, principalities, kingdoms, um, uh, free states, you could move easily from one to another. Uh, let's say you, uh, you were a businessman in, uh, in Cologne, and for some reason the Archbishop of Cologne decided to impose heavy taxes or even confiscate your property. Well, you just moved down the Rhine uh, to Rotterdam or uh, across the North Sea to, to England. And, and so this was a uh, constraint on the typical predatory practice of rulers everywhere and throughout the ages. In this process, major roles were played by a powerful, independent, and self-aggrandizing church, um, the Catholic Church, and not a national church, an international church. So it was not uh, bound by any particular rulers. Uh, it had its own uh, uh, program, but nonetheless, very often found itself in opposition to political rulers. The uh, Magna Carta, um, for instance, is assigned uh, by the barons, these, this indictment on uh, of bad King John, uh, signed by the uh, barons of England, and the first um, name is uh, uh, Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, the church in alliance with the barons against the king. Um, there was that, and then there, were, uh, there was the rise of the towns, the self-governing towns in the Low Countries, in Germany, elsewhere, Italy, and um, the emergence of a self-confident middle class. Over a course of centuries, what happens is that um, uh, parliaments arise, not just the uh, parliament in England, which everybody heard of, everywhere, the Cortes in uh, Castile, for instance, um, in the German states and, uh, uh, and elsewhere. And the point of these parliaments was to restrict the, tax, um, the taxing power of, of the prince. He had to go to them in order to raise uh, taxes. There were um, charters uh, that uh, enshrined the rights of people. The Magna Carta is the most famous, but there were many others in the Low Countries, uh, uh, the Joyeuse Entrée. So, 
Thus, long before the uh, 17th century, Europe had produced political and legal arrangements, a whole way of life that set the stage both for individual freedom and the industrial takeoff. The role of Christianity here is very important. Scholars have pointed point in the, the end of antiquity, the state was sacred. Roma was a goddess um, and worshiped. Um, when the Christians came along, St. Augustine is the best example, the state was desacralized. Uh, it was um, created uh, because of man's sins and there was nothing metaphysical, metaphysically lofty about it. But in uh, modern times, in, in the 16th uh, century on, there's the rise of absolutism and the centralized bureaucratic monarchies that tried to do away with all these various um, institutions that the people had developed. They were, and they succeeded in many cases. In France, for instance, the Estates General was done away with. Uh, but uh, there were two incursions of absolutism that were fought successfully. Um, in the Netherlands, the um, struggle against the Spanish Habsburgs. How many people here have heard of the revolt of the Netherlands? Okay, number of Euro Europeans. American students really don't have any time for that um, <laughs> because um, they would have to ignore the uh, careers of uh, some, some lady named Harriet Tubman and uh, another lady named Sojourner Truth. I'm not sure who they are, but no time to hear about this crucial, this crucial uh, development in the history of, of the West, of human freedom. Could say a lot about, uh, about uh, Holland. Let me see if I can come up with a, oh yes. What, uh, the Dutch were, after a number of decades, finally successful. And they got their independence uh, from Spain. Small people in, in Northwestern uh, Europe against the greatest empire in Europe at the time. And one of, one of their sons, a, philosopher, a Jewish philosopher named uh, Spinoza, the, um, the Dutch, by the way, were, were very tolerant, especially of the Jews. And when Portugal and Spain expelled the Jews, many of them went to, uh, uh, to the, uh, Holland. And uh, Spinoza, very, <coughs> very proud of his city. The city of Amsterdam, he says, reaps the fruit of this freedom in its own great prosperity and the admiration of other people. For in this most flourishing state and most splendid city, Men of every nation and religion live together in the greatest harmony and no questions and ask no questions before trusting their goods to a fellow citizen, save whether he be rich or poor and whether he generally acts honestly or the reverse. Holland, uh, Holland is, is one of the provinces, or generally we can talk about the Netherlands, uh, became an early example of a Wirtschaftswunder, of an economic miracle. It flourished uh, uh, amazingly. And because Europe was divided up in these different jurisdictions and so on, it exerted demonstration effect that other people, other peoples uh, picked up on. Um, it, it was remarkably prosperous for its, its time. Uh, it was radically decentralized. There was no prince, there was no court. Um, there was a, a, a diet of, of all the provinces of uh, the Netherlands, uh, but uh, they didn't have any, um, uh, veto they, did, they, they could be vetoed by any one of the provinces. There were seven provinces. Um, so there were you know, very little uh, legislation and regulation. Uh, and as I mentioned, religious toleration, because uh, about two thirds of the population was Protestant, one third Catholic, and, uh, and all the Jews as well. And they decided on a de facto, not, not uh, uh, technically, but a de facto religious toleration. Because the Netherlands was ruled by merchants. They were interested in, in making a profit 
Um, they didn't like the idea of burning people at the stake for their religion didn't appeal to them uh, very much. It interfered with business. Um, and um, so you have this great example of the Netherlands. And then drawing on uh, to a degree on, on the uh, uh, example, in the 17th century came the experience of the English. Um, and there the incursion was uh, the Stuart kings uh, who tried to undo the liberties that the English had accumulated for a long time. And, that, and then the history of liberalism begins with the levelers and John Lilburn. You can read about it in Murray's book, but you should buy, uh, you should buy his history of economic thought because it's really encyclopedic. Um, maybe buy it for your mother for Christmas or something. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Subscribe to Mises Weekends via iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or listen on Mises.org and YouTube.